0: Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, I share my analysis of each scene in the Warner Brothers movies that are part of the DC Films Justice League universe. I love the depth of meaning in these films, and I love discussing them with other fans. Currently, I am making my way through Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice, directed by Zack Snyder, which I now consider to be a masterpiece of visual literary filmmaking. We are up to scene 10 which is the on-screen introduction of Alexander Luthor Jr., known famously as Lex Luthor. I think it was clever that they had different characters in this movie pronounce his surname differently. Some said Luthor, some said Luthor. They sidestepped giving a definitive pronunciation, which I think was a wise move because if they had adopted one pronunciation, it would have retroactively invalidated a portion of previous TV shows and movies. Personally, I'm going to stick with Luthor, which is what I'm more used to. So scene 10 is roughly 23 minutes into the movie. That's pretty late for an introduction of the primary villain, but BVS does not handle its villain in a typical manner at all. Lex carries out a large number of actions that drive the plot and the rising conflict of the movie, but almost all of these actions are enacted off-screen. People were probably expecting the more typical approach of showing the villain's villainy on-screen. But by having Lex work primarily behind the scenes, this gives us, the audience, a similar experience to those who were actually part of Lex's plans in the movie universe. We see Lex's public face and his off-kilter mannerisms, but we don't see directly how he is manipulating everything. We get bad feelings about him, but we don't get confirmation of his evil doings until the end. The relatively late introduction of Lex as a villain is also due to the fact that this movie is not a typical hero-villain three-act story. Batman is another villain in this story until his redemption after his moment of clarity. That is, Act 4 in the revenge tragedy archetype, which uh, Batman is basically going through the revenge tragedy structure. So the movie has already been setting up the beginning of Bruce and Clark's character arcs, but also it's set up Bruce as Batman and one of the antagonists to Superman. A side note, we'll see later that it's actually very important to Bruce that it be Batman who takes down Superman and not just Bruce Wayne, because part of the motivation is to prove that all the Batman stuff has been worth it. So if you view Superman as the protagonist, then Batman has been set up as villain number one, and Lex is able to come in later as villain number two. Another amazing thing about this movie, though, is that you can view the whole thing with a different protagonist, namely Batman. If you identify more directly with Batman and prefer to root for him, then the movie has already set up Superman as the antagonist, and you can allow yourself to be convinced by Bruce's rationalizations that Superman needs to be stopped because he's too powerful to exist. To us, then, Superman and Batman are protagonist and antagonist, or vice versa, and Lex can come in now as a bad guy that everyone can root against. To Lex, Superman and Batman are pawns or game pieces for him to manipulate according to his whims. One thing that really strikes me about the Lex character in this movie is how he never seems to have a single care or concern for anybody other than himself in the entire movie. He never sees a person as an end in themselves, but only sees them as means to his ends. According to Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy, then... This version of Lex Luthor, as far as we can tell, is a totally immoral person, because a moral person should view others as ends in themselves. What are the ends that Lex is pursuing? Well, we're starting to get into that here in scene 10. But if you want to jump ahead and see a full analysis of Lex's character, I highly recommend Man of Steel Answers and the blog post called Lex Luthor Explained. In short, All of Lex's actions are attempts to prove that power is not innocent, and he can't stand it when someone powerful is looked upon with admiration and love. I'll put a link in the show notes. So we get Lex's first appearance here in scene 10. Editor David Brenner said that the original three-hour cut of BVS had Lex's appearance even later in the movie, but they moved it up so that his manic energy could be felt earlier on and color more of the events. I think where they ended up putting it is just right, because we just saw in the previous scene that Bruce has slipped off the edge and is zeroed in on tracking the white Portuguese through any means necessary. That brings us to Lex, who much later we will find out is behind the white Portuguese. We first see Lex shooting baskets in his company's employee recreational area. This immediately sends the message that Lex is a millennial and part of the Silicon Valley type business model. In fact, the movie overall has a California, San Francisco, Oakland-type sister city feel to it. Lex has brought his father's company into the 21st century, just as filmmakers are bringing the character into modern times. Lex is also ostensibly interacting with his employees. But if you look closely, he never really interacts with his employees. It is likely that this basketball shoot-around was artificially staged by Lex because he knew Senator Finch and Senator Barrows were due to arrive. Lex's line, I didn't know you were here, sounds exactly like something someone would say if they were pretending they didn't know their guests had arrived and they were trying to act natural. Lex is carefully putting on the face that he wants to project to others. It's his mask, though we'll see some cracks in the mask later at the library fundraiser. And actually, Lex's first words are, Ahoy, hoy! This is a bit of an unusual greeting. Many people might recognize it primarily from Montgomery Burns on The Simpsons. And although Lex does reference a lot of popular culture in his dialogue, I don't think this greeting was put in as a nod to The Simpsons, but instead a nod to the fact that ahoy is the Czech word for hello. And the Czech Republic was part of Czechoslovakia, which in the 20th century was not only invaded by Germany, but later on, one of the Soviet states during the Cold War. This very well could be an ancestral greeting for Lex. And because Chris Terrio never lets a moment for subtlety pass him by, ahoy also happens to be a common phrase used to call to a ship, and Lex's ship ends up being the link that brings Bruce and Lex together. Okay, we're only about five seconds into the scene, so I need to pick up the pace. So Lex points out to Senator Barrows that his dad is the one who put the name on the company, LexCorp. This becomes important in our understanding of Lex Jr. because it shows that his dad was successful and also a public figure. The discrepancy between the public's adoration for Lex Sr. and Lex Jr.'s private hatred and fear of Lex Sr. will be a driving force for his character next we get some further backstory on lex senior lex says that his dad was born in east germany which is adjacent to the czech republic by the way and has a lot of crossover historically with regard to german austrian and czech borders lex senior growing up with stale crackers in east germany is a reference to the cold war era and the soviet union because before that it would have just been germany so by calling it east germany it's clearly cold war era It was a challenging string of events for Germany in the 20th century, and it would have been easy to become disillusioned with those in power, because before the Soviets were the Nazis, before that was the extreme inflation and a collapsed economy, and before that was World War I. Lex specifically refers to the irony of the citizens of East Germany having to come out to the streets to wave flowers at tyrants, to worship those who were cruelly wielding power over them. This is important not just because the three main characters are each, in some way, trying to carry on a legacy from their fathers, but also because Lex's main motivation throughout the entire movie is that he rejects the idea of benevolent power lording above everyone else, and he wants the rest of the world to reject this idea too. Manofsteelanswers.com has the full analysis of Lex's motivations and moves, so again, I refer you there if you want to look at Lex across the entire movie. But in this scene, we can see that it has stuck with Lex that his father was forced to publicly adore those in power, who were actually cruel and tyrannical leaders. Later, we will see that Lex's father was also a prominent public figure who was abusive and cruel in private. Lex continues his dialogue by saying that it was by providence, by God's will or design, that he discovered kryptonite. We don't get a full explanation of how kryptonite is formed, just that it's radioactive and it has to do with the world engine from Krypton, which is not only extraterrestrial, but which also was actively terraforming the Earth for a period of time in Man of Steel. Lex said his Rebuild Metropolis crews found the kryptonite, which means Lex has been sponsoring some of the rebuilding efforts as shown in the prequel comics. And before you say that the world engine was in the Indian Ocean, not in Metropolis, Remember that the effects of the world engine were being felt in both locations. So the fragment of kryptonite could be both located in Metropolis and caused by the world engine. That's not a contradiction. Senator Finch asks what a rock has to do with Homeland Security, which reveals that the pretense for this meeting involved Homeland Security, and Lex waited until this moment face-to-face to reveal to the senators the real reason for the meeting. He says it's about planetary security, and Lex makes his pitch to work with the government to exert authority over Superman. Based on the Man of Steel Answers analysis, this ties directly into Lex's refusal to let Superman be a force of absolute power above all others, because power is never innocent. And there was also an analysis by Pulp Clatura, the one who traced BVS as a revenge tragedy, And the Pulp Clatura analysis showed that a main theme in the movie is the failure of public revenge or accountability, and thus people being driven to private means of revenge. Basically, Lex's first move is to try to partner with the government to reign over Superman. He set up the African tragedy to cast doubt and raise questions about Superman's role in the world, and then he used this opportunity to pitch his kryptonite idea to the senators. Eventually, Lex realizes this public route won't work, and he then shifts toward more private, brutal forms of dethroning Superman. As a minor note, Lex's scientists say that they took the kryptonite sample to where they were keeping Zod's body, they being someone else. They means that Lex's team does not control the body, but only had temporary access to it. That's why Lex negotiates for greater access to Zod's body later, even though he's had some limited access already. We learn through the dialogue and a nice visual aid that kryptonite is extremely damaging to kryptonians, and Lex mentions that they want a larger sample. He uses his typical playful language to describe the large sample, among the fishes, a whale, and he references Emerald City from The Wizard of Oz. I tend to think that Wizard of Oz is not a big signal for some deeper meaning. It's not like Excalibur at the beginning, which basically was a roadmap right to the entire final act of the movie. Instead, I think the Wizard of Oz reference is just a little joke, because Lex loves quoting pop culture and making references, I think, just to amuse himself. And for the audience, we later get Perry White joking about Clark tapping his heels three times to go back to Kansas. Continuing in the scene, Lex asks the Senators for an import license. They will consider the request until later when Senator Finch gives her refusal. Some people have wondered why Lex asked for the import license when later he just smuggles in the kryptonite anyway, without the license. To me, it was obvious that the import license was his plan A, and the smuggling was his plan B. In this movie, Lex always has a backup plan. And in an interview with IGN, Jesse Eisenberg said, Lex has like 40 backup plans. In the Man of Steel Answers interpretation, Lex wanted the import license so that he could work with the government. But when he sees that Senator Finch still believes the oldest lie in America, and she ultimately trusts Superman, he shifts towards using Batman to take down Superman. So he smuggles in the kryptonite and intends for Batman to steal it. So anyway, he asks them for an import license, and he seems a bit exasperated that he has to explain to Senator Finch the reason for a weaponized version of kryptonite, as a deterrent to prevent Superman from becoming a tyrant like those that his father had to suffer through in East Germany. That's the reason he gives at the moment, while the deeper reason is that Lex's worldview and ultimately his religious beliefs cannot accept an all-good, all-powerful Superman. Senator Barrows reveals that most people aren’t afraid of Superman at least not yet, because he says that Superman’s the only Kryptonian around, and the implication is that there's really nothing to fear with Superman. This leads us to the Metahuman thesis: that there are more superpowered beings on earth besides Superman, and these metahumans are the roots of our long-standing myths and legends. Senator Finch states the thesis as a possibility, but Lex refers to it as a fact. There are more of them and he slams his ball down to emphasize his point, showing his frustration that the Senators are too slow on the uptake. This is one of the many moments where Lex briefly shows his inner volatility, even while he's trying to hold it together with his public face. Lex closes the scene by saying that having a kryptonite weapon, a silver bullet, will make sure that we don't have to depend on the kindness of monsters. This is another cultural reference, this time to A Streetcar Named Desire. Now, I wrote off The Wizard of Oz earlier as just a quick nod, but Streetcar seems like it might have been a more strategic choice. Tennessee Williams writes about characters having breaks between their perceptions and reality, and it's pretty easy to see that Bruce and Lex are both trying to force their own perceptions onto the world, forcing the world to make sense, rather than accepting the reality of things. In Streetcar, Blanche submits herself to Stanley. And Stanley took advantage of that and was quite brutal. This is what Lex would expect of someone in a position of power like Stanley, that they would abuse it and be brutal. And so Lex does not want to be like Blanche, but instead Lex wants to fight back and reject that person of power, in this case Superman. Ironically, Blanche ends up cracking and being taken to a mental institution at the end of Streetcar. And at the end of Batman v Superman, we see a somewhat cracked Lex, who is also institutionalized in Rev. But even just on the surface, this kindness of monsters line is really good, because it shows that Lex has equated Superman to a monster rather than a hero, as most people have seen him, at least up to the African incident. In Lex's view, Superman is a monster, but one who just hasn't been revealed as a monster yet. In scene 10... Lex presents himself as someone who is planning for a worst-case scenario in case Superman were to turn bad. But actually, Lex already views Superman as a monster who needs to be exposed as a monster, or taken down a notch on the power ladder, because Lex is unwilling to accept that power is innocent, or that someone in Superman's position is purely good. Also, Lex's manner of speech and his fake southern accent for the kindness of monsters line It just adds to his smarminess and his unlikability. The fact that Senator Finch actually is from Kentucky and has a slight southern accent makes this borderline insulting as well. In future scenes, we get to watch the subtle showdown between Lex and Senator Finch, and it has already started here in scene 10. Not only is there the accent tease right at the end, but at the beginning of scene 9, Lex asks the senator, "'How you doing?' But Lex is someone who never cares about others." And so the question is just for show, because he's trying to butter them up for his proposal. Senator Finch seems to be on to Lex before she even arrives at the meeting, and she responds, really great, and her eyes are searching him trying to see what he's up to. She won't be played easily, and the subtle swordplay between these two characters is something I really enjoyed about the movie, and it was more akin to a character drama than a typical comic book action movie. Okay, that's it for right now. The interactions between Lex and Senator Barrows actually aren't done yet. They continue in just a minute or so. But first, there is a cutaway to Wallace Keefe and the Daily Planet before we wrap up this introductory stuff for Lex Luthor. So in the next episode, I'll cover scenes 11 and 12 and deal with the false god vandalism. Then we'll pick right back up with Lex and Senator Barrows And we'll also talk about why the filmmakers might have broken up this Lex stuff by putting Wallace in the middle. I also might drop in an episode about the fact that Superman had only 43 lines in Batman v. Superman. As a preview of that special episode, I don't take it as a negative thing at all, and I think that Superman's lines and the amount of lines worked amazingly well with the story that they were telling. Anyway, thanks for listening, and you should also check out Man of Steel Answers and the Suicide Squad cast. Let me know in the comments what I missed or what I got wrong.